You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey, good morning. I'm thankful we're singing about Jesus alone because that's the message of Acts that Paul is bringing city to city, that Jesus really is the one he claimed to be. He can't kind of be in the middle. Either he is the Messiah or he's not. Either salvation comes through him or it doesn't. Either Easter is everything or it's not a big deal. Return your pastels. Don't go to Nana's for ham, right? Either Christmas is significant or having a nativity scene on your mantle doesn't make very much sense. Either he is the Messiah or he's not. Yes, Jesus, you alone, is the message of the scriptures. And with it comes hostility. In every city Paul seems to go to. So he was in Thessalonica. We're going through the book of Acts here as a church. Started in chapter 1, verse 1, back in January. We're in the middle of 17 today. He's in Thessalonica proclaiming the gospel. Hostility and opposition happens. Then he goes to Berea, sees some people come to know Jesus, but more hostility, more persecution, more opposition is happening. So city to city, he's proclaiming Jesus alone compared to their idols. And over and over again, we see opposition taking place. And now in the middle of Acts 17, we see Paul arrive in the famous cosmopolitan big deal city of Athens, where we'll be this morning. Let's pray, and then we'll jump in. Our Father, we are thankful for your love for us. We're thankful it really is Jesus alone. Jesus, you alone. You are the one who is worthy. We are not. You are. But we're thankful the one who is worthy also knows us by name and died for our sins and loves us and invites us into a relationship with you. How amazing it is to be called your people and to be called the children of God. I ask that every person in this room today is mindful of the good news of the gospel, of what Jesus came to do for us And because of that, we feel your love, we are aware of your love, we receive your love, Lord, that we believe in your love by faith that's understood in the good news of what Christ accomplished on the cross and through his resurrection. We pray for all the churches in Tallahassee as they gather today. We're not not the only ones doing this. And ask to keep the enemy out of this place, out of our city. That you be with those in our church family who maybe are hurting, who have suffered loss, who are experiencing any kind of pain. Lord, I ask you even to be with those who have really good things happening right now. They won't take trust in those things. They'll just be grateful point all of us, regardless of what's happening, to you, the cross of Christ and his resurrection, and the reality that one day he is coming again. We lift up the name of Jesus alone, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. So it's important to know that moving from, we could say, religion to being secular, like a city becoming more secular, being secularized, it doesn't mean that a longing for God disappears. The longing for God actually reappears, and the worship of other things except Christ. It's not, oh, we used to be kind of religious, kind of Bible belty, and now we're more secular, so it's all just disappeared. No, it hasn't. It's reappeared. And the worship of idols that might not be stones made by human hands like we see in the scriptures, but idols of our hearts that lead us to trust in other things instead of Jesus. Say, God, I might believe in you, but I think this is better for me. I want what I want, not what you want. So here's Paul coming to Athens, this major city, he's left Thessalonica, he's gone through Berea, seen some good things happen, some really bad things happen in terms of persecution and opposition, and now we get to Athens. He comes into the city through the boat, second missionary journey, and while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, the other disciples to come with him, verse 16, he was deeply distressed, like he felt something inside when he saw that the city was full of idols. Instead of going, wow, Athens, this place is amazing, I've always wanted to come here. Let's go tour this place. Where's the best place to eat? That's the questions I ask. Where's the best place to eat? How's it going here in terms of what do people like to do? He sees the city and he's distressed. He sees physical, actual idols that have been built everywhere. 
So what did he do in verse 17? He, so he reasoned. He had to respond to this. He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews, telling this is not of you. This is not for you. These are false gods. There's one true God, and with those who worship God. So he's also talking to believers, saying, hey, don't give in to this. Don't bow down, literally and figuratively, to the idols of this day, as well as in the marketplace, the main cosmopolitan area, every day with those who happen to be there. So Paul sees the city distressed by idols. He doesn't even like going to some campaign against the city. Rather, he shows up and he speaks the name of Christ because of the distress in his heart. He wants them to see that those idols that they're worshiping are never going to love them back. But God's the one who loved them first and the fact that he sent his only son to die for their sins. Will they trust in Jesus, the one who rose from the grave, rather than all these idols? It says he saw the city. The Greek word there is the word beholding. It means he looked hard. Think about walking up uh, to a mountain overlook. For me, it'd probably be driving up. I'm kind of indoorsy, but driving up uh, to a mountain overlook. And you get out, and what do you do? You don't just go really quick and jump back in the car. You went all the way up there. Or that long hike you just did, you don't just get there and go, okay, we're done. No, you look around for a little bit. You would see it. You receive it. You behold. You stare, and not a quick glance, and you go, wow, look at what God has made. When you first get to the beach, and you walk up, and you see the beach, and you see the sand, before you go run and set up your umbrella and all those type of things and start throwing the football, you usually take a little look. You take a glance and go, wow, this is so beautiful. Look at what God has made. Here is Paul in Athens going, look at what sin has done. Look at what our hearts have actually made. Hearts that were designed and created to worship God and instead they're worshiping everything else you could possibly imagine. Historians used to say that it's easier to meet a god or a goddess on the main street of Athens than it was to meet a person. There were 10,000 people in Athens at this time in the first century and 30,000 gods. 30,000. Streets were lined with them, statues, temples. You can see the top of Athena's statue on the Acropolis from the main harbor as Paul came in. Temples of Demeter, Poseidon, Dionysus, Zeus, on and on. There were pillars with Hermes' head on top. Idols everywhere. Worshiping happening all over the city, hardly secular. The truth is, and I think it's what, part of what distressed Paul, is that every idol is an evidence for a hunger of God. Every single idol. The hunger for God. That's there in us. The one they don't know but long for without even realizing it. Also the God they long for but also resist in their own sin and in their own flesh. Look around Tallahassee. Look inside your own heart. I preach to myself first before I preach to anybody else. I'm not above any of this. I'm not condemning anybody. But look around and look inside. You don't see temples. You don't see actually built statues, but walk the halls of Charles High School or Leon High School. Go down Sorority Row on Jefferson Street. Go through your Instagram feed, your bank statements, your calendar, your own thoughts, they're lined with idols, lined with them. And what do you see? You see emptiness actually disguised as full. You see emptiness disguised as happiness in the moment. If Paul walked here today, he would look around and he'd be distressed by seeing a city full of idols. But I hope my first step is I look inside my heart and I'm distressed by seeing a heart full of idols that doesn't reconcile with the fact that there's one true God who loves me so much that he gave his only son for me and that he really is better 
every day I'm going to either worship God or worship something else. I'm either going to think I need to go around God for what I'm looking for, or I'm actually going to go right to him. Verse 18, the scene heats up a little bit. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, kind of rival groups, also debated with him. They loved to debate in Athens. Some said, what is this ignorant show-off trying to say? The gospel message always will bring some hostility. Oh, he's arrogant. Oh, he's judgmental. Others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities. This is interesting. What's he talking about here? Why? Because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Paul wasn't saying, be more like me. He's pointing to Jesus, like he's the answer. He's the author of our faith. He's trying to get them not to trust in idols, but to trust in Jesus, the one the whole entire Old Testament points us to, the one who holds all things together. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus and said, may we learn about this new teaching you are presenting. What a softball, what an open door. We're curious, will you tell us more about this Jesus you're talking about? Maybe we'll include him in our other gods. Because what you say sounds strange to us, and it should sound strange. Paul told the Corinthian Christians that the gospel's foolishness to those who are perishing. Our hearts want to say multiple gods, everything's God, I'm a God, but to say there's one true God and that one true God died for us, sounds crazy. We want to know what these things mean. Tell us, Paul. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. So I go, wow, they, they need a hobby. This was their hobby. This is like what they did all day. They would debate and listen and exchange ideas right in the center place. It's like, do they have a job? I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure how that worked out. They worked from home, right? Okay, so Robert Garland, who's a professor at Colgate University, in a secular book on the history of this time, wrote this. In his book, Introducing New Gods, The Politics of Athenian Religion, he describes a herald as if someone actually in the role of a herald would come onto the scene as one who would try to secure his God's recognition and acceptance as a new God. So people in Athens think that Paul's a herald, that he's coming to try to get his God to be cleared as a God worthy of worship. Little do they know this is not some random herald. Instead, he's heralding the name of Jesus Christ. This heralding of the new God, he continues, would be a forum to make the case for the benefits of a new God and to drum up popular support. It was done in a public meeting place such as the Agora, the civic and commercial heart of the city, and a popular venue for all those who wished to exchange ideas. The Council of the Arapagites had the job, this background's important to get what's happening here, had the job of hearing and examining the herald's case that a new God existed. If the council was convinced that we're going to accept your God, the deity would be admitted uh, to the Parthenon, a temple would be built to the god or goddess, and an annual feast would be declared and now part of the calendar of events in Athens. So that's what they think Paul is doing. He's coming to make his case that God, his God, needs to be included with your gods, get a temple, get his own date on the calendar, that he gets included in all these things. Like, don't count me out, include my religion too. Bruce Winter adds, the Council of the Arapagus was the body responsible for initiating action to assimilate yet another new God in the Pantheon. So he's basically saying that Paul, when they brought him in, here's what we're telling you, we possess a legal right, it's our job. We had the legal right to judge what this new teaching is and that is being spoken to you. In other words, is this a God or not? We're gonna decide. Like our group is gonna make the call, that's our job. So Paul's like, y'all, I'm not a herald like you think of a herald. Yes, I'm a herald, but not to include a new God into the club. I'm declaring to you the one true God. So Paul's like, guys, 
Time out here, verse 22. So Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus, gutsy move here, and said, people of Athens, like I'm addressing all of you, I see for sure that you're extremely religious in every respect. I mean, look around. You're worshiping all kinds of things, idols, statues everywhere. You exchange ideas about gods. You believe in, you're so religious, you believe in so many gods. For I was passing through and observing, remember, beholding, looking closely, the objects of your worship, because if we worship something, it means they're receiving it from us. I even found an altar on which is inscribed to an unknown God. So in case we missed any, this is for the unknown God. He says this to them. He doesn't say, hey, you do what's best for you and I'll do what's best for me. He says, therefore, what you worship in ignorance, and you actually said it yourself, unknown, an unknown God, you don't know him. This, Christians are this people. We have a message, this. This I proclaim to you. You want me to exchange ideas to tell you about my God? Let me tell you about my God. He's way different than anything you see in the streets of Athens. The God who made the world and everything in it, and they're like, gasp. No, Zeus was part of that, and this God was part of that. No, no, the God who made the world and everything in it. He is Lord. He's Lord of heaven and earth. And you know what? He doesn't live in shrines made by human hands. He doesn't need you to house him. He's omniscient. He's all-present. He's, you name the all, and he is that. If we're going to build something, we build it so people can come together and worship the Lord together, not because God needs it. You know what else? He's not served by human hands, as though he needed anything. He doesn't need anything from us. He's self-existent. Since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. What a contrast. Like this God's a God that brings life. He's the one who authored life. And you're worshiping other things when this God actually exists? He said, from one man he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. Like this is how sovereign he is. He did this. This God is also a personal God and a loving God and a near God who wants his people in relationship with him. He talks about the greatness of God and says, here's why he did this. So they may seek God. They may know he's real and respond and give their lives to him. And perhaps, we're going to pray about it, perhaps they might reach out and find him. And the good news is he's not far from each one of us. He's not the one who's moved. We're the ones who have moved, who said, God, no thanks. I don't want you. I want your stuff instead. For in him... We live and move and have our being. They've never heard this before in Athens. They've been told, this God's in charge of this, this God's in charge of that. We look to this God for fertility and this God for life. And, and the, he goes, he is the one who in him we live and move and have our being, have our existence. Then he quotes one of their poets to help them see. He uses their culture and their context to help them see a point. He's as some of your poets have also said. He's familiar with their language. For we are also his offspring. Like that God is also a personal God and allows us to be part of his family. Your poets have mentioned that. I'm sealing the deal and laying the plane for you, what they really meant. Since then, we are God's offspring. We shouldn't think the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone. We can't contain him. We can't build him 
or an image fashioned by a human heart and imagination. You had like designers and like woodworkers build your statues. Think about that for a minute. The Bible mocks this often that we'll see the writers of the scriptures say things like, why do you worship these statues? Like you went to Home Depot and brought the wood and the supplies yourself. The scripture will say they have ears but don't hear. Like you built them, you made the ears. They have eyes but can't see, mouths but can't speak. Like, why would, rather than the living God who gives us our being. So Paul's basically telling them, hey, that's not why I'm here. I'm not here to be a herald of a new deity to join the club. I'm not trying to add a new deity to the calendar of events. And when I wrote that, I thought, gosh, how good am I? And I'm guessing, how good are you at just adding God to the calendar? Just adding on God as an accessory to the calendar of events for our lives, rather than saying, God, like you are my calendar. I want my entire life to be a reflection of your goodness and your grace and what you've done for me. But something in my heart says, yes, I believe in you, but I just want to add you to the rest of the things happening here. Another God on a list of many gods in our lives. And Paul's saying, that's not how it works. I'm not here to make the case. I'm here to proclaim the name that is above all names. Build a temple for him to live in. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in shrines made by human hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Our God's self-existent. He is not dependent on us. Why would you want to serve a God that's dependent on you? No, we're dependent upon him. Like our dependence is one of the markers of Christian discipleship. We are not independent people. We are a very dependent people upon our God. But the good news is he's always available to us because he himself gives everyone life. We depend on him for life and breath and all things. We depend on him every single second of every single day. He says, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. In Athenian culture, there were so many gods with so many domains that in any effort to make sure they didn't miss one, they had another god called the unknown god just in case. Just in case. How many of us claim a belief in God that we don't know? But thankfully, we don't have an altar of an unknown god. We have a God who has revealed himself to us through his word and ultimately has revealed himself to us through his son, Jesus Christ. God wants us to know who he is. For the Christian, there's no such thing as the unknown God because our God has spoken. It's been said before that the most important thing you can believe is not, is there a God? It's not atheism versus theism. There's not a God, there is a God. The most important question, a guy named Carl F.H. Henry, who first, I believe, is who first said this. The most important question is, if there is a God, has he spoken? Has he spoken? So if he hasn't spoken, we can't really know anything about him. The scriptures tell us that the mountains and the skies can show us there's a higher power, but believing in a higher power doesn't save. We must be forgiven of our sins. And God has made known to us how that happens is through the blood of Jesus Christ who never sinned and became righteousness for us. So many gods everywhere. I think about that often. How many of us claim a belief in God that we don't really know? Everyone's a theologian. Everyone. My friends just wrote a book called Everyone's a Theologian, or called You're a Theologian. Every single person has thoughts about God, views about God. Where are you directing them? Where are you getting them from? From the way God has made himself known through the scriptures or through other means that are going to be unreliable. See, Paul's saying, Athens, God is not looking for your acceptance. 
He's not on trial. The creator of the universe is never on trial. He's looking for your repentance. To turn from these gods and to turn to the one true living God. And that's an act of grace in itself. That God's not punishing you for your idolatry. He's going to give you a way out of it to the one true God in life with him. He's like, you want to judge God? Really? Reverse those roles, people of Athens. He's the one who judges you. He's the one who judges you. But in his grace, he won't judge you as your sins deserve. Because Jesus was judged and stood condemned in our place. That's why we call the gospel good news. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So I believes in him, that name that is above all name, will not see death, will not be punished for their sins, but rather have everlasting life and be forgiven and cleansed and made new. He's saying, quit putting God on trial. I'm not here to debate this God versus that God. I'm saying this is the one true God and you can know him. What great news it is. The Council of the Arab Haggites had been founded on these words. They started their organization. When a man dies, the earth drinks up his blood. That sounds gross. That's what they thought. As in, there's no resurrection. There's no afterlife. So there's no afterlife and no resurrection. The earth just sucks up our blood. It means there's no judgment in any kind of the afterlife because there's no resurrection from the dead. So in other words, who cares? Live how you want to live. The Epicureans and the Stoics, were both they're different groups, were both trying to answer in different ways the same question. How can I live in this world and be happy? And here we are in 2023, and it's still the driving question of our culture and our city and our lives. How can I be happy? And the world applauds that and says, keep asking that question, and you just go do more of whatever it is that makes you happy. Like, that's the answer. And that makes perfect sense if there's no resurrection, if there's no afterlife, if Jesus is one God of many gods on the list. The Epicureans, look at them for a minute, they believe that pleasure was the chief good of humanity, that humans are exclusively material, that's it, no souls. So no need to fear death, no afterlife, no regret. Kind of you only live once. They were saying YOLO before it was cool, which we stopped saying like 10 years ago, but I want to bring it back. So religion existed, they believed, to try and control morality. People still think that today. The religion exists to kind of control people, impose morality on people. You don't have to worry about any of that, people of Athens. Don't, don't sweat any of that kind of religion stuff. There's no afterlife. You just do you, whatever that even means. That's how deep we are nowadays in our culture. You do you. Okay. You know what Paul said about that to the Corinthian church? He said, I agree. I think they're right. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 32, if the dead are not raised, as in if Easter's not true, he says, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Like if there is no afterlife, if Jesus did not rise from the grave, if the tomb is still occupied, if the dead man just got buried and stayed there forever, maybe they stole his body, whatever it is, if that's the case, do whatever you want. It does, and everybody's right. As long as you don't interfere with anybody's happiness. But he is alive. He is alive. The Florida State women's basketball team recently went to Greece. They just got back. They played a couple preseason games over there. We had some coaches from the team who are members of our church. 
They played some games over there, did some sightseeing. They try to go international every, you know, four or five years or so. It's a neat thing for the seniors to be able to get a chance to do that. They had, they had a great trip. I had a chance to catch up a little bit and hear about it. And they went to these sites, like here in Athens that we're talking about. They got to actually see these things from the scriptures in real life. And I was talking to one of the coaches and I said, oh, so you know there was 30,000 around gods at the time in Athens when Paul was speaking? And they was like, oh yeah, yeah, we heard all about that. And I said, did you get a chance, they had temples built to like every god? I said, did you get to see any of them? Did you get to actually see the temples? He's like, oh yeah. He said, they're, they're right there in the city, like they're right there. And I said, oh wow, what were they like? Is it like a museum? Is it like, he goes, no, there's ruins. They're ruins. It's like there's some concrete. This used to be the temple of Zeus. This used to be the temple of Poseidon. Like, they're, they're ruins. Why? Because those are the lowercase g gods who were. Jesus is alive, and he's the God who is. They were never actually gods. It's like every book that comes out to critique Christianity and say the Bible's not real and this isn't real. Like, you know what happens, like, a month later? They're on the 299 rack outside at Barnes and Noble. Sorry, inflation. 599 rack outside uh, at Barnes and Noble. So the Bible continues to be in every single store. Ralph Winter wrote this: the strategies Paul adopted in Acts 17 they are different than we saw in Berea and Thessalonica. They were helpful for us. They provide the paradigm for contemporary Christian interactions with the minds of non-Christians. We want our distress about the idols to cause us to want to engage and be in people's lives. Like, our hearts should break over this. Like, my hope is that when we see the idols of our city, it doesn't bring about a spirit of condemnation, but it brings about a spirit of compassion. People are following gods, they're never going to love them back. And they're also sinning and not in repentance, and they're rebelling against the one true God. He said, connecting with the hearers, he used their poet, went into their, their main area, correcting their misconceptions. A lot of people have misconceptions about Christianity. We need to work through and help them understand. Conversing with a theological or ideological framework, everyone has a worldview. Theirs is this kind of polytheism, a gajillion gods. So he compares it to the one true God who made everything compared to their gods that are numerous. Convicting them of their compromises with their own consciences and the light of their intellectual commitment are critical steps. Help people see their inconsistencies, not in a gotcha kind of thing, but just where they lay. It's also necessary to confront them with their need of repentance. That's what he ultimately pointed them to. He pointed them not just, it's easy to go, oh wow, he quoted his poets, how culturally savvy he was. Yes, then he called them to repent, to turn from their sins and to turn to God. And faith in the Lord Jesus because of the coming day of judgment. He was serious about that. He wasn't shy about that because he actually believed it to be true. And if we believe it to be true, then we need to tell people that they can escape it and not just escape it, but have a life with God and be known by him in a relationship with him. These are all essential features of an apologetic, like a defense of the faith that is distinctly Christian and biblical. What did Paul say? Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this, the resurrection of Christ, is what I proclaim to you. A post-Christian society, and our, our society is becoming increasingly post-Christian is not the same as a post-religious society. A post-Christian society is not the same as a post-religious society because worship has never stopped. It's just redirected towards something or someone else. Bob Dylan on his Slow Train A Coming album wrote, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. 
Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. That we're always worshiping. We're always serving. And I would say right now, the biggest push in our culture is to serve ourselves and to worship us. We never would admit that, but that's kind of functionally what we see happening. So realizing that our society is unchristian, but not irreligious or unreligious, I think it should actually give us a little more courage. Because people are already worshiping. They're not foreign to worship. They might be foreign to Christian worship on a Sunday morning, but they're already worshiping. It's everywhere. Look around our city. Behold, like Paul did. The self-help movement is crying for something. Crying for something. And the answer is just, you be a better you. More of this, more of that. It's desperate for something. Anxious parenting is crying for something. More control, play the role of God. It's crying for something. Living your life through your kids' activities is crying for something. Tennessee Street in College Town is crying for something. The person who walked into Planned Parenthood yesterday morning is crying for something. The person at the Trump rally who figuratively falls at his feet is crying for something. Even the person who had to do 25 takes to have the perfect first day of school chalkboard picture is crying for something. The person who has to travel nonstop and can never be rooted is crying for something. The person who has their kids' sports as the absolute driver of the entire family is crying for something. The person who won't let their married adult kid leave and cleave is crying for something. Let me post about my kids 17 times a day to tell you how good of a mom or dad I am is crying for something. The sexual revolution is crying for something. Crying. Begging for something. Augustine wrote this, you have made us for yourself. Oh Lord. And our heart is restless until it rests in you. Just look around and look within. And we know this is true. And he said that like century ago. Centuries ago, excuse me. Centuries and centuries ago. We might have well written it yesterday. So what does Paul say to that? Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. It doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't. We wonder why there's so much brokenness in the world. Why should it be any different? We said, God, no thanks. I don't want what you want from me. I want what I want from me. Of course the results are catastrophic. We should not see secularism. We should see longing and worship. Flannery O'Connor wrote about the Christ-haunted South, how there's this kind of knowledge of God in people that sort of prize at their heart and kind of mess with their mind, where there's kind of this lingering understanding of the gospel, like somewhere in their lives. They, they try to reject it, and they, they're not atheists, they're not agnostics, but there's just sort of this like lingering there. There's got to be something more, like, like there's something different here. Like I, I know the answers, I know the story. What would it look like for us to turn from the world and turn to Jesus? They need the church to stand up and say what you worship as unknown. This is what we proclaim to you. 
He was talking about what they were looking for without even realizing it, the ultimate answer in life, that it's found in God and in his son, Jesus Christ, who rose from the grave. He says, here's my prayer, that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he's not far from each of us. Notice he's not bringing a message of condemnation. He's bringing a message of hope and truth. How many out there right now in our community, maybe even in here, I'm sure in here, are worn out worshipers in Athens and need to hear that you don't need to be some alpha male or Instagram mom star to know this life is worth living. Like you're supposed to get older. Like it's okay. Like we do age. But we're on a clear path all the way to be with Jesus forever. To this world, we can say, I see that in every way you want purpose and meaning and fulfillment and happiness and peace in your life. And here is Jesus, the resurrected one who offers us the freedom from having to look so hard and try so hard to find it. A real actual kingdom, not a faulty one in ruins to give your life to. So find help and hope by coming to the one who is already near. I'm convinced right now that the reason why we see churches that preach the gospel largely growing across America and we're seeing those that are more kind of in the theological, I don't mean political, theologically kind of progressive camp that are continuing to decline and decline and decline is because people are hungry. People are hungry. They're looking around the world and they're going, is this really it? I keep trying all the things they're telling me to try. I keep focusing on me more and more and more. I keep trying to do it through the kids. I'm trying. I'm going to blame someone else for a little while and blame them for a little while and blame culture and blame society and blame my upbringing. That's going to carry me over for a little bit. But here still I am. And I'm walking down the street of Athens. The Athens of my heart. And there's 30,000 gods. But thankfully, God did not leave us to wander. He didn't leave us to have to stroll the streets by ourselves. He said, hey, people of Athens, what you're worshiping, you're worshiping in ignorance. I got great news for you. There's one true God, and he's made himself known through his son, Jesus Christ. So you don't have to worry tonight when you go to bed on whether or not you've done enough or paid enough attention to Zeus and everything. You can go to bed at night resting in the truth that Jesus Christ is crucified and risen for God's glory and for you. Will you turn from the idols and turn to God and turn to Christ and stop believing the lies? There's more to be gained by disobeying him. There is to be gained by obeying him. We've got to go around him for what you're looking for rather than right to him. Because all those other things one day are going to be a was or a were. Jesus is. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. And he invites us to know him and he forgives us and gives us grace and gives us love and shows compassion on us. And at the exact same time, that God will not share his glory with anything else. He's not a competition God. He's the one who gives us life and breath. So we believe that life with him is worth it. We not be the people the Bible says, they have ears, those statues, but don't hear. Those idols only demand from you. They demand. They never love you back. 
We're told in 1 John that Jesus loved us first. And that's great news for us. Let's keep turning from idols in our hearts first to the living God. And let's tell a city so desperately in need of hearing the gospel that Jesus lives. Let's invite people to church to hear the good news. Let's have coffee and conversations and group texts and just ways to share God's love with people in the way that you know works best for your friends by works. I mean, they're just going to be received well, not because we want notches on our belt or see folks as projects, but because we're distressed when we see a city filled with idols and we want people to know Jesus and experience God's love for him. Because the earth doesn't suck us up like they thought to the Areopagus. We will stand before God. And the good news is, if you're in Christ, you have nothing to fear because you have been covered by the righteousness of Christ. That's what we call it good news. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are thankful for your love for us. We're thankful that the scriptures over and over again help us understand the love, that love by what you did for us on the cross. That Jesus stood in our place. In our place condemned, he stood. So now there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So forgive us when we still linger back to Athens in terms of worshiping. Rather than being present in Athens and wanting to be connected to people in the city and share your love, let that be our posture. Let us be bold. Let us be compassionate. Let us be unashamed. Lord, I ask that we'll make your things priorities in our lives, the things of you, that, that examining our hearts be a regular activity, that the local church will matter to us, that us believing in your gospel will lead us to live generous lives through our church and this mission, to want to share the good news, to want to be a part of what you're doing. Lord, I thank you for folks who may walk from the store for the first time in a long time or came back the second week in a row, whatever it could be. Lord, allow them to see the significance and the importance of what your word tells us that you really are the one and you're worth it because Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the, he is the living God who took our place. Lord, we're thankful that we can pray to you, that we can know you and that you're the one who loved us first. Help us to love you back. And I'm thankful even when we don't love you back, you still love us more. That grace is that radical. Let us believe in it. Here's our lives. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.